you know, a friend of mine who's long worked in American politics said, it's easier for Democrats to imagine losing our democracy entirely or fundamentally changing all of our institutions than it is to imagine winning a Senate race in Indiana. Like that is the fundamental problem, is that you do fight politics with the institutions that you have, not the institutions that you wish you have. And given that, I think Democratic leadership has been an absolute calamity. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. As you know, I have been summarizing some of the main themes and ideas and suggestions from my new book, from The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Two weeks ago, I talked about the basic relationship between the state, the group, and the individual, how philosophical liberals should think about the kinds of freedoms that we should guarantee to citizens in a free society. Last week, I made a defense of patriotism. I argued that we should embrace both a civic constitutional patriotism, but also an everyday cultural patriotism. But there's also a third kind of question, which I think it's helpful to think through when we talk about the vision that we should embrace for how to make ethnically and religiously diverse democracies work. And that is what kind of metaphor can help to guide us in thinking through the amount of commonality or the amount of difference that we should sustain in that kind of society. Now, the most famous metaphor, which was very influential in the 1950s and 1960s, is that of the melting pot. It is based on a deeply moving play by Israel Sangwal, which was premiered in Washington, D.C. in 1905, a play which actually had a morally very ambitious vision of a new American culture, a new American man who can be very aware of the deep conflicts that rest asunder in the old world, but overcome them with the two protagonists marrying each other, even though his family was murdered by her father. But the way that the metaphor of the melting pot came to be used later in the 20th century often was too homogenizing. It was to demand of people that they should essentially leave all of their cultural particularities aside, that the new American culture might make some room for spaghetti with meatballs or Kung Pao chicken, but that Italian and uh, Chinese immigrants should ultimately become more or less indistinguishable from each other. That was a mistake. The vision of the melting pot was then substituted in many circles with the vision of the salad bowl, or as it was sometimes put, the mosaic. But that too was a mistake, because it conjured up the image of a society in which different groups would simply live next door to each other, in which they might tolerate each other, in which they might even sort of sample each other's goods from a great distance once a year, but in which essentially they were hermetically sealed off from each other. And that raised the risk of a society which is deeply fragmented and dysfunctional as Lebanon is today, and a society in which individuals would not have a freedom to make their own choices because they are so defined by their membership in a particular group into which they were born. 
That's why I believe that we need a new metaphor. And the metaphor that I ended up suggesting is that of the public park. Because the public park allows people to make their own choices as to what to do and who to engage with. You and I could go and debate about the ideas in the great experiment together, saying that we're deep in a conversation, we don't want to talk to anybody else. Or we could hang out in the park and start to meet new people, start to build new connections with people who might be very different from us. In a free society, everybody has that choice. It is perfectly legitimate, for example, for most Amish in the United States to say that they want to spend most of their life interacting with people who share the same religion and the same moral ideas as them. But they are not so interested in going out and making those new connections. But at the same time, you can also look at the park from the outside and say, hang on a second, if nobody here makes new connections, if there isn't people meeting each other at all, if everybody is just staying in their own bubble, that's sad. That's not the kind of public park we aim for. Similarly, in society, while it's perfectly legitimate for each person to make their own choice, for some people to stick within their own communities, if we have no connective tissue at all anymore, if the number of encounters between people from different backgrounds falls below a certain level, that represents a very serious risk to us collectively. And that's why we need institutions, that's why we need cultural norms, that's why we need educational institutions, which encourage rather than discourage the meeting of different people, the building of that connective tissue, which alone can help our ethnically and religiously diverse democracies thrive over time. My guest today is Sam Kupperman. Sam is the author with Eric Holder, the former Attorney General, of our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote. He is also a principal at Fenway Strategies and somebody who is a speechwriter who's written for just about every major democratic politician in the country, but as you'll see in the conversation, is also very critical of the messaging of Democrats in general and the Biden White House at the moment in particular. We had a really interesting conversation trying to think through the nature of Marcus political institutions at the moment, figuring out what kind of reforms are necessary to make sure that Americans' access to the vote is guaranteed, to make sure that the 2024 and 2028 elections are going to be certified in a fair manner rather than stolen, but also debating whether structural changes to the Senate, for example, to a set of other American institutions would help to make American democracy fairer. In the second half of the conversation, we then dive deeply into what is going wrong with democratic messaging at the moment and what Democrats would need to do to win in 2024. And as you'll see, we have an interesting disagreement about whether Democrats should primarily focus on kitchen table issues and talk about the economy or whether they need to more proactively distance themselves from some of the loudest voices on cultural issues within the democratic coalition. 
Sam is a democratic strategist, so he's speaking very much from that perspective. We agree on a whole bunch of things. We also disagree on many things, and we know each other very well. He is a former student of mine. So you will see that this conversation is even more like a debate and a conversation than many that I have on the podcast. I enjoyed it tremendously. I hope you will too. Sam Koppelman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you just published a book with Eric Holder, pretty good co-author to have there, on the history of voting rights. But it says that it's not just a history, it also is a description of a crisis and you have a plan. So first of all, you know, why should people be worried about voting rights? This is not 1960, it's not 1870. Why is it that today this is something that readers should really worry and care about? Right. So one of the things we did with this book was look back at the history of America all the way to the first laws and first presidential elections having to do with voting rights. And you know, the first presidential election, something like 6% of the American public was eligible to vote. That's the electoral base that voted on George Washington's election. And ultimately, the Electoral College decided those without even caring what the popular vote was. And you look at the sweep of American history and you know, more than a couple hundred years, there's about 50 where we're a actual multicultural representative democracy where everyone has the right to vote. From the Voting Rights Act in 1965 up to Shelby County versus Holder, which essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act. And hours after which Texas started passing voter suppression bills and a bunch of other states did. And we're at risk of not something exceptional in American history, but returning to our elections just looking like what elections have looked like throughout most of American history, which is that they exclude a huge percentage of the public and are ultimately not representative of all of the people. And, you know, it's not exactly a given that everyone's in support of democracy, even conceptually anymore. You know, something like eight in 10 Republicans still believe that the results of the 2020 election should be overturned. It's some absolutely galling stat. You know, you have senators like Mike Lee in Utah who brag about why America shouldn't be a democracy anymore and never really was supposed to be one. Sorry to cut in, I always find that that is actually an unfair talking point because it is true when you look at the founding documents that the founders explicitly distinguish the institutions of the United yes. States as a republic from a democracy. Now, over time, our understanding of that has changed. But I always think like this is just a difference in preference for vocabulary, right? Like what Mike Lee is saying when he's saying that is not that majority of people should not decide who the next president is. He just is emphasizing what I would call a liberal democracy, which is to say a system of government which combines individual rights with majority rule and which conservatives tend to prefer calling a constitutional republic. And it may also be true, by the way, that Mike Leake supports completely unacceptable things in other circumstances. But I have to say that, that things like that make me worry a little bit about catastrophizing, right? I just yeah. don't think that Mike Lee saying, we live in a republic, and emphasizing the continuity of founding documents in that way means he's against democracy. Yeah, I hear that. I think fundamentally, it is true that the founders did not intend for America to be a representative democracy. I mean, they thought the idea of a democracy where everyone votes and everyone's votes are counted and dictate what the public does. They thought that was like the stuff of Philistines. Like they thought that that was like completely not what America was intended to become. And then even after that, I mean, you looked at generations and generations that excluded huge swaths of the public from our democracy. And obviously Mike Lee wants nothing remotely like that. But I think because when you look at American history, you see how fragile democracy is. You look at Reconstruction when it seemed like we actually did have democracy and then it was wiped away. I think catastrophizing is wrong. And I think in many ways, 
people use that and use fear-mongering to get folks less engaged in our democracy and make people feel like elections are a fait accompli and they don't have agency, and I think that's wrong. But I also think it's pretty clear to me that when there's people who are pushing for America to become less representative, to roll back some of that progress, that you have to take that seriously so you can continue the expansion that's taken place, the fundamentally optimistic story of American democracy that's been the last couple hundred years up until about 2013. And there's still been all sorts of hopeful signs, which we can talk about. And that I think we definitely agree on. I think during the Trump years, we often talked about how silly it is to attack Trump on things that he's not actually doing or on the few things he does that are reasonable when there's plenty of things he's doing that are actually wrong, right? And I feel like so many issues in American politics have a similar kind of structure. And so on this topic, take us through what the actual threat today to voting rights are, right? What are the things that are not catastrophizing? What are the things that are not talking points? What are the reasons to be worried in a serious way about a rollback of civic and voting rights today? Yes. So there are specific bills that people like to talk about since the start of the Biden presidency. Dozens of states have put forward bills that are characterized as suppressing voting rights. And there are definitely things to worry about with those. To me, as I researched the book, I was less concerned about some of that stuff which is bad and we should stop purges and we should figure out how to make voter ID free so that these laws can't be used to suppress tons and tons of voters from turning out. But to me, it's the architectural structural stuff, which some people might defend, which Mike Lee might defend. And and there's a long legacy of scholars who defend it. That really concerns me. Let's go through those two things separately. So when you're talking about those voter suppression laws as the court in those states, what do they consist in and what aspects of that should we worry about and what aspects should we not worry about? So what's the voter ID requirements in it? What's the changes of opening hours? What's actually happening in the country and and how do you assess that? A big example of a voter ID law that's a problem. In Alabama, right around the time of the Shelby County case, they decided to mandate that you get the kind of ID that you could get from a DMV, an official government-issued ID to vote, while at the same time defunding DMVs and closing a whole bunch of them around the state. So they passed those two things in concert because the idea was they wanted to raise the barrier to entry to vote. So bills of that kind have taken place across the country. There's also bills that make it easier to purge voter rolls based on not voting. So they basically make voting rights use it or lose it. And there have been studies, including in Ohio, where someone actually just decided to spend their weekends auditing everyone who was purged from the voter rolls. And like a huge percentage of those people something like half of those people still lived in the state and still should be eligible to vote, but they didn't use the right to vote in the last election, so they're taken off the rolls. That's just like fundamentally undemocratic. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to pass it. The thing is with these laws, it's not necessarily convincing that they actually effectively help one party or another. When you look at voter ID laws, they also lead to a lot of organizing against them and extra registration efforts that take place and people get motivated and excited to fight back against attacks to their democracy, to their right to vote. So the actual data surrounding this is kind of confusing, but just like as a normative moral question, like it just feels wrong. Like you should probably try to make it easier to vote instead of harder. This seems to me like an area where these laws are clearly wrong, but they're actually wrong for slightly different reasons than people tend to think. So I think 
they are motivated often by either racial animus or at least uh, strategic considerations, right? So they are motivated by Black people tend to vote for the Democratic Party. We want to win against Democrats, so we're going to try and stop Black people from coming to the polls. That is morally heinous, right? They are also morally wrong because they have the effect of making it harder to vote, and we shouldn't make it harder to vote for people who can legitimately vote. But I think what's interesting is that some of the scholarly literature on this actually suggests that the partisan effects that both Republicans and Democrats think these laws have don't tend to happen. But actually attempts at voter ID laws, for example, don't nearly as cleanly discriminate against Democrats as people tend to assume. Their attempts to overcome that through activists and so on, as a result, it doesn't seem to be that they actually favor one party over the other, which is sort of one of the frustrating things. We think if only we could get Democrats and Republicans to understand this, we could get to a more sensible solution on what to do. So it's a case in which Republicans are passing laws that really are morally deeply objectionable, and they're not even serving the purpose they're intended to serve. I mean, my favorite example of this is vote by mail, which, especially after the pandemic, Democrats have been hugely in favor of. And Trump was so angry about the vote by mail states. He said if these laws were passed enabling vote by mail, Republicans would never win an election again in the history of the country. Like, in fact, you look at vote by mail and it just makes sense. Who that helps is older voters. Older voters tend to be Republicans. In general, allowing vote by mail, it's sometimes a wash in certain states. Students are sort of more likely to vote by mail or whatever. But like in general, it's like basically makes it so more old people who tend to be more Republican can cast ballots. And so it's one of those weirdly partisan debates that actually is maybe organized opposite of how it should be. So that's sort of like the debate about voter ID laws. And I think the intention is the scary thing. So the fact that there are people who are trying to make it harder to vote, thinking that that's going to make it so that they're more likely to win. That's like a thing you want to identify as like a bug in our politics to try to root out. Because that's just like that hasn't gone super well in history. And like often they then figure out the ways to keep people from voting. And so you got to like keep an eye on that. So on voter ID, you know, this is one of the areas where my Europeanness comes through, because in Europe, you have a very simple structure to this. You need a voter ID to vote in virtually every European country, not, I believe, in the United Kingdom, and perhaps there's one or two other places where you don't either, but certainly in most European countries. You know, yes, you need to show that you are who you are in order to vote, but it is also very easy to access ID. There's not this attempt to make it hard to access ID. And, you know, most people need an ID for all kinds of purposes. And this is one of the things that I sort of always find weird in this, right? Like, if you're upset about the way in which a lack of ID might stop people from going to vote, that's a very legitimate thing to be upset about. We should also be upset about the fact that they are not allowed to drive, that they probably have all kinds of obstacles in their lives because they cannot effectively prove who they are. And so it seems to me, and of course, it's always easy to say what the solution should be in American politics and our politics are so screwed up that it may just be impossible to get there. But the solution here should be something like universal free ID, not just voter ID, but ID, which then allows people to go about all of those important functions in their lives and that also then makes it unproblematic to have voter ID laws. Yeah, I mean, it's a no-brainer that what we should do is allow people to use a wide range of IDs that they have now that are verifiable and actually them. And then to make it much easier to actually get an ID. Like right now in Texas, when they passed their voter ID law, if you didn't have your birth certificate at the time for whatever reason, which is true of hundreds of thousands of people in Texas. I think miraculously, I still somehow have my birth certificate, (laughs) but I always think I'm about to lose it. Yeah. Well, if you didn't have that and you didn't have another form of ID, it could cost you something like $80 to figure out how to like go get another ID, apply for another one, have it show up in the mail. 
and because we all recognize that poll taxes are just like completely immoral, like you shouldn't have to pay any money to vote. It's just clearly wrong that people were having to shell out $80, you know, which in Texas is 10 hours of minimum wage labor before taxes to get an ID. That's just too high a burden to get people to the polls. But obviously what we should do is have the government send everybody ID to their mailboxes. If you don't have a stable home or mailbox, you should be able to go to any government office, a post office. You should be able to go to a DMV, wherever else, and pick up an ID. Um, this should be the lowest barrier to entry possible because then you could actually pass laws that mandate ID and can sniff out you know, fraud should there be any, even though the statistics say it's pretty unlikely. But I think that this is a clear case where it would serve Democrats well, it would serve Republicans well to just talk about this as like a sensible, good governance solution. Like this is not something we should be polarized about. It just makes a ton of sense. 80% of Americans or something think you should have some form of ID. They also think that it should be free to get the ID. Like this is one that both parties should just come together and pass. And it's sort of a no brainer. And it would be good for Americans to have ID to be able to go about their lives and access all the yes, other anyway. services that it gives them. So you are obviously concerned about the motivation behind many of these voter suppression laws. You are worried about the barrier to voting that it creates, as am I. But ultimately, that is not where the action is. You think the action is on the structural stuff. What do you mean by that? You, know, you just look at America right now and evaluate it as a democracy. And five of the nine Supreme Court justices were appointed by presidents who won after having lost the popular vote. Bush won the popular vote the second time, but was elected while losing it the first time. You look at the Senate, where Democrats and Republicans have the same number of seats, but Democrats won 40 million more votes in 2020. So the same representation, but 40 million more votes to Democrats. You then look at the state legislatures that are passing some of the most extreme anti-democratic laws across the country and laws that are just hated by the public. Like, you know, the, the laws that ban all abortions, including in cases of rape and incest. I mean, those literally have single digit support sometimes, 20% support, 25% support among the American people. And they're passing in state legislatures because each of the representatives is more worried about facing a primary than actually having a serious competitive election because of gerrymandering. And then, of course, the House of Representatives at the national level is also gerrymandered, where Democrats in this last 10 years have basically had dozens fewer seats than they would have if it were truly one person, one vote. So you look at all these structural factors, and it's clear that not every American's voice and vote is equally represented in our government. And that just feels fundamentally wrong. If you believe in democracy in the sense of each person having the same say in what their country is going to ultimately do and how they're going to be represented. And the egregious situation in the Senate is like, if you're in California, your vote matters like a 40th or an 80th of the vote of someone in North Dakota or South Dakota or these other states that have low population, that just feels fundamentally wrong and imbalanced and undemocratic in a way that these voter ID laws are wrong, but don't have a huge effect on power and actual wielding of power and representation of the people. I think these structural things are like kind of calamitous, especially given that the Senate with the filibuster 40 votes can veto functionally any bill that wants to be passed. If you had just the least populous states doing a filibuster, you could have a situation where around 18% of the public is vetoing the interests of 82%. And that just feels 
extremely undemocratic. And it's obvious that people would then be upset that the government isn't reflecting their interests and lose faith and then get less involved politically. It seems like the kind of death spiral that really hurts democracies across the board. So let's go through some of the main points here. I may be missing some, we can put them back on the table, but I think the main points are gerrymandering, the Electoral College, and then the Senate, both its structural makeup and the question of filibuster. Yes. So let's start with gerrymandering. So first of all, I think gerrymandering is obviously wrong. The classic line that voters should choose for politicians, politicians shouldn't choose the voters, is evidently right. I wonder for what the impact of gerrymandering on the American political system is right now, because here too, it seems to me like perhaps we are misdescribing the nature of the problem. So for a long time, Republicans got just an advantage from gerrymandering because they gerrymandered more aggressively, but even more so because they just had more control in state legislatures around the country. It looks as though for the 2022 electoral map, that is going to cease being the case. According to a number of very serious analyses, it looks likely that the partisan lean of gerrymandering is going to mostly disappear, in part because Democrats now have more power at the state level, in part because they've started to gerrymander more aggressively as well. I nevertheless worry about it, uh, A, because it is wrong in itself, it shouldn't be happening, but B, not because it gives Republicans an advantage over Democrats, but because it gives the extremists within the Republican Party in particular, but both parties, an advantage over moderates. Because suddenly, uh, the most important election in 70 or 80% of districts is the primary. And then whoever wins a primary has a safe seat, and it means that 70 or 80% of Congress just worries about their own internal party pressures rather than having to reach the median American. Do you agree with that analysis or how do you feel about the state of gerrymandering in 2022? Yes, I fundamentally agree with that analysis. You know, and what happened is that in 2010, Democrats were high off the victory of President Obama and let Republicans, there's this great book called Rat Fucked about this, but basically let Republicans on their own invest sums of money that had never been invested before in state legislative seats and because redistricting takes place every 10 years, that was a critical election and Democrats were completely asleep at the wheel. It was also a normal midterm wave election against an incumbent president. So Republicans essentially got to draw all of the districts that they wanted to draw in 2010. So for the last 10 years, it has been completely warped in terms of representation in the House of Representatives, and it has been warped in a partisan way where Republicans have had an advantage. It does seem that for the next 10 years, and who knows exactly how politics is going to play out, you know, one of the interesting factors is because of various demographic changes, Republicans play defense in a lot of states, like in Texas, where instead of trying to make every district one that they were 55% likely to win, they wanted to really shore up the districts that they were going to win to make sure that it was like 70, 80% likely. So for a confluence of factors, the House is going to be more fairly balanced on the macro, but the people who are going to be in elected office are, as you said, the ones who are going to be more worried about primaries than general elections. That's a problem at the national level. And I think it does poison our discourse. Like, you know, this is how you end up with truly crazy people in Congress. But I'm really much more worried about it at the state legislative level, where there's even lower turnout and where, because the barrier to entry is even lower, the people are even fucking more insane. And so that is how you end up with these 
abortion bills that ban exceptions for rape and incest and the life of the mother. Like that's only because the representatives are worried about a primary and know that because of the way their district's drawn, there's no way they're going to face a legitimate challenge from the other side. And so that just poisons our democracy in terms of like having the wrong people in elected office and making it much harder to reach compromises and much harder for elected officials to represent the median voter. So again, with the gerrymandering, it's like kind of in the bucket of like, it's bad governance. Like it's just like not the way either party should want things to be. I will say the one key like false equivalency that is worth pointing out is Democrats did put a bill on the floor of Congress that would have banned partisan gerrymandering. So Democrats were like, hey, like, here's our offer. Like, let's ban partisan gerrymandering, put it completely in the hands of independent commissions and let them run with it. And then Republicans like filibustered that bill and wouldn't vote for it or support it. So I think it's a little bit misleading to say that each side is doing its own thing in the same way. I think Democrats are looking at Republicans who refuse to pass a bill like that and are not going to allow there to be asymmetric warfare on districting, which feels fair to me. Like that just feels like on its face. That's obviously what you do if the other side won't accept the sort of like promise of neutrality. But other than that, I agree that it seems like these maps are more fair and that the central problem here is how extreme our politicians have become, not over the next 10 years, hopefully, that one party is going to have way more power than the other, necessarily just due to the way that the maps are drawn. Yeah, I guess if you're in the middle of a war, one important question is not who's willing to disarm unilaterally, which is too much to ask, but who's willing to come to the table and negotiate a peace agreement. And if one side is suggesting a peace agreement and the other is not, that is an important moral difference, even if both sides are fighting in unfair ways as the war is going on. Before we move on to the other topics, what about primaries? Isn't this one of the big problems of the United States? Let me make the case here and get your reaction. There's two kinds of equilibria that work well, right? One is a democracy in which everybody actually participates and in which decisions are made by hopefully 80-90% of people who come out of the polls, as is the case in some European countries. The United States has always been lower, in part because of voter suppression, in part because of other reasons. But at least, you know, hopefully a majority of people who are eligible to vote actually showing up and expressing their preferences, right? Another kind of way in which you steer many institutions is through deeply committed activists that have some amount of institutional responsibility. So the way in which many European parties choose their candidates is through some internal democratic mechanisms, but also through, you know, party leaders and people who've been in the party for decades and so on, who have an understanding of what it takes to win elections, who have an understanding and identification of long-term interests of a party, making some of those choices. And both of those seem to work relatively well, right? What you have in the United States is a strange kind of system where the candidates of each party and effectively because of gerrymandering, the representatives who govern us are selected by 10, 5, sometimes 2% of people. So it neither reflects the opinions of a majority, and in fact, it is systematically biased towards people who are more politically engaged and tend to be more radical, but nor is it people who have institutional responsibility, right? These are not Democratic or Republican Party stalwarts who've gone to every party meeting for decades and pay some kind of membership due and have some kind of responsibility towards it. It's people who can just show up once every four years and derail things, right? So should we be rethinking the 50-year experiment in primary elections? I mean, it's definitely something worth considering. Though what I'm glad has taken place is that the parties are beginning to realize that the primaries are broken. Like, I mean, the Iowa caucus, God love that tradition, everyone eating those fried steaks, showing up fried Oreos at the county fair or whatever else, like, you know. Increasing the likelihood that a president has a heart attack since 1970. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you look at the Iowa caucus, that is one of the most obscene 
institutions you could possibly imagine. I mean, you have to show up the way caucuses work in general. I mean, you have to show up on election night, go to a gym for several hours of a high school, debate with your neighbors who you're going to vote for, spend all this time. And then there's all sorts of complicated delegate math where it's unclear if your vote actually counts. It's definitely not one to one. And if you think about who that excludes, like anybody who needs to work at night, like single moms who need to take care of their kids, older people who can't go stand in a gym for several hours. Like it just makes no sense. And so the status quo of primaries that includes caucuses and other extremely low turnout institutions does make no sense. And when states get rid of caucuses, as has happened in the last couple of election cycles, turn out like quintuples. So what that tells me is that, yes, it's a problem that primary turnouts low in general, but that it's especially bad because the institutions are designed to make it almost impossible to vote. And that if you actually do make it easier to vote, more people turn out. So it is maybe worth giving it a shot. So like, what would happen if we actually built primaries in such a way that like people, it was easy to vote in them instead of building them so that it was really hard and self-selected for the people who want to spend several hours on a Tuesday night debating politics, which is just not the average American. You might want to distinguish between primaries at a presidential level and perhaps for senators and primaries at other levels, right? I mean, you do actually see some European political parties having adopted primaries from the United States, not always to good outcome or to good effect. But when it is a question of you know, Hillary Clinton versus Barack Obama in 2008, you know, there was a primary election which engaged a huge number of people, which had significant levels of turnout, way below where I'm comfortable in a way, the problem of primaries were not democratic enough, but it was millions of people who turned out. You know, at many elections for state representative, for city council, etc., you really have a few thousand people turn out yeah. uh, to a primary. And at that point, anybody who has one very fervent support network because of special interest, because of campaign financing, or because of some form of political extremism has an advantage over everybody else. So I guess as I'm thinking through this, I might think, you know what, I get for president, this makes sense. Perhaps for Senate, it makes sense. I'd have to look at the numbers. But the lower down you get, the more absurd the primary system seems. Yes, though, of course, it's the only reason we ended up with Madison Cawthorn sex tape. So, you know, it's got some positives and some negatives to it. <laughs> I think it's just adding to the negatives yeah. myself. But yeah. I mean, one other interesting thing about the move from caucuses to primaries, just to point that out, is that as so often in politics, actually, this would make for a great book, perhaps time it can be your next book, like all the ways in which Americans think that the partisan self-interest lies somewhere where it doesn't. It's just like so many people do like weird things in American politics under some empirical assumption that it's just wrong. And one of the interesting things is that the push to abolish the caucuses comes mostly from the left of the Democratic Party. I actually am sympathetic to that. I think for the reasons that you point out, caucuses are wrong and problematic. But the story is, look, they tend to be in states like Iowa that are super white, and that's really unfair and unrepresentative. Again, I think that's a fair point so far as it goes. But the assumption is that that will then help more left-wing candidates win elections. And actually what we've seen is that in caucuses like Iowa, people like Bernie Sanders tend to emerge as winners, versus in big primaries in states like Georgia, it's people like Joe Biden who tend to emerge as winners. Totally, yes. I mean, it's like, yeah, we should pass vote by mail in all states, even though it'll help Republicans. And we should get rid of caucuses, even though it'll probably help moderates. And the people who are leading both of those fights are those who are probably going to lose out as an outcome. Yeah, the incentives are all completely warped and confused. But that is why it makes sense to go back to first principles here. Like, in terms of voting rights, like, I don't know, easier to vote is better than harder to vote. More secure makes sense over less secure, as long as you're not 
also making it too much harder to vote. Like you just got to kind of go back to like the basic cost benefit analysis of these things, treating it like a normal topic where real strict scrutiny on anything that's going to make it harder to vote because democracy is pretty important and it's going to make it less representative. But like in general, we should just like talk about this as a normal issue with costs and benefits with first principles and goals that we probably basically all share. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about it. So we've talked about gerrymandering and primaries. I mean, next on our agenda was the Electoral College. What's the case for abolishing the Electoral College or what kind of reform do you suggest for it? I mean, the Electoral College is one of just, I think, the most like obviously laughable American institutions. Like it was created because when America was founded, we didn't believe in the popular vote at all. So each state could just send its slate of electors to the convention and then like they could just decide to vote for whomever they wanted to vote for. So that's where this comes from. And then eventually different states passed laws that essentially said, we're going to give all of our state's electoral votes to the candidate that wins the popular vote in our state, which makes more sense and is more democratic than how it started. Like, it's pretty clear that like, you should just like count up all the votes and whoever wins more votes should win the presidency. That just seems like one of those like baseline obvious ones. If the Electoral College advantaged Democrats, as it did during President Obama's time, by the way, like Republicans would support getting rid of the Electoral College because right now it advantages Republicans. Democrats are the ones who want to get rid of the Electoral College. Though in polls, like 65% of Americans, 70% of Americans think the Electoral College is pretty dumb. I hope that's the actual wording of a poll. Yeah, pretty dumb. But there's like sort of two solutions. Like one is a constitutional amendment, which is not going to happen. There is actually a really interesting way to do this, which is called the National Popular Vote Compact, where states agree to give their electors to whomever wins the national popular vote. So instead of just whoever wins the popular vote in their state, they just give it to whoever wins the national popular vote. And the reason this is a more plausible outcome, and I actually think of all of the like big structural reforms to democracy, this is kind of within reach, is you actually only need states totaling 270 electoral votes to agree to do this for it to happen. So just to explain the background here as I understand it, so the logical thing to do would be to change the constitution. As most listeners will know, changing the US constitution is incredibly hard. And so it's just sort of a non-starter. And so the idea here is that states can, in theory, decide on their own how to choose the people they're sending to the Electoral College. So Massachusetts could, in theory, tomorrow decide that they're just going to send their electors to the Electoral College according to the overall national vote, no matter what happens. But obviously, that's a kind of unilateral disarmament, right? That gives a structural advantage to whoever tends to lose in that particular state. And so the law that a bunch of states have passed is to say, once enough other states also pass this, then we are bound by the winner in the national vote and the popular vote. And so that essentially would sort of do this end round around the electoral college. The electoral college continues to formally exist. It's just that the majority of people in the electoral college will always agree with the winner of the national popular vote. How close are we to passing this? And is there a risk where the Supreme Court might strike this down, potentially in the middle of a contentious election, which could lead to a real constitutional mess? So, yeah, the way it works is that once states totaling 270 electoral votes, which would be the majority, once enough states agree to this compact, that's the trigger that makes it happen. We're at like 141 or something. So it's actually pretty close. And there's a bunch of states with Democratic governors that haven't done it yet, or states that could have Democratic governors that haven't done it yet. So it's one of those things that in the next 
10 or so years could really happen and would significantly change American democracy for the better, I think. It seems like it's actually, and you know, I did have the benefit of writing this book with former Attorney General of the United States, so who has a pretty good sense of the way that the law works. For better or worse, like the Electoral College is like a completely ad hoc, insane institution. Like they really did just like change it from being uh, an institution that could do whatever the hell it wanted to one that like supports the popular vote winner in its own state. And you could just keep changing it. Like no constitutional amendment has been passed to change any of this stuff. It's all sort of... States have always had huge discretion in how they decide who to send to the Electoral College. And so therefore there's no reason why this law should be any less constitutional than the series of other laws they had about who to send. Yeah, I mean, like Maine and Nebraska, like randomly just have like districts that can go vote however they want. So they're the only states that split their electoral votes, which you really just wouldn't think that this is how the system works. Like we're like electing presidents here and like two random states are like, actually, we'll split ours and the others just do all for one. Like it doesn't actually make any sense. So this is one that like I really can't imagine even moderate representatives of both parties in a lie detector situation. I cannot imagine anyone really defending the Electoral College on its merits as currently constructed. It's really hard to conceive of why that makes sense. You know, here's another concern about the fact that states can really decide on their own who to send to the Electoral College, because it also means that there's actually very few federal controls over a Secretary of State in Arizona or some other place certifying that the person who won fewer votes in that state somehow should be the winner because of alleged voter fraud. And, you know, when I think about the 2024 presidential elections or the 2028 elections, you know, the thing I worry about by far and away the most, more than any of the other things we've talked about so far, is some of the attempts by Republicans to place loyalists rather than small-D Democrats into influential positions as as Secretary of State and so on around the country. And some of the laws that state legislatures have pushed, which give those elected officials much more discretion over who to ultimately send to the Electoral College. And so, you know, if I imagine a true constitutional crisis or I imagine a true way in which an election is stolen in the United States, that is the path. So, Is there anything that those of us who want an orderly transition of power in 2024 and 2028 can do to avoid such an outcome? And what would that look like? Yeah, so the key thing that you need, the key thing you'd want, is that in all 50 states, the certification of elections is conducted by nonpartisans. Like what you'd want is for every election to be certified by a group of people who are neither partisan themselves nor appointed by partisans. The problem is that in states like Georgia, they flip certification so that the state legislature is ultimately in charge, or at least in charge of who gets appointed to do this. I wish I had a better, more programmatic set of policies for what to do to prevent this at the federal level. But fundamentally, election administration in America has long been, forever been, conducted by the states themselves. And what you need to fight for is making sure that it continues to be independently run in as many places as possible. This is just one of those situations where I'm like fundamentally pessimistic. I mean, my biggest concern about 2024 is Donald Trump winning fair and square. Like, I think that's the most likely bad outcome for America is that he just happens to win more votes than Joe Biden. But it's very easy to imagine 
just a slightly different version of what happened in 2020, but this time it's succeeding. So the biggest like check against last coup was that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats had control of the House of Representatives, which ultimately has to certify the outcome of the election. If you look at the midterm polls, it definitely seems like it's possible that Republicans are going to be in control of the House and the Senate in 2024. So that huge protection, that final step in the process, we're kind of fucked. So what we're counting on is that the states actually certify the elections as they did last time. And you look at like what happened last time. Like, how did this happen? So again, like Michigan and like one of the major certification crises, like this Republican ended up flipping and joining the Democrats and being like, look, I'm not going to decertify the results of the election in Michigan. Like that guy's gone. Like he's gone from power. In Georgia, all of the people who led the movement to respect the results of the election, Raffensperger and whoever else, they're being primary challenged, really might not win. And then in a bunch of states, the certification of elections is being transferred from a nonpartisan process to a partisan process. So I'm just extremely concerned. This is just like something to be genuinely worried about. And if 2020 happened in 2024, like a very similar election where four states were decided by fewer than, what was it, 40,000 votes or something crazy like that? It's not obvious to me that the outcome would be the same. So in terms of what you can do about it, you can like really like try to vote out elected officials who are doing this absolutely crazy motherfucking shit that like is absolutely as pants on fire, like, you know, emergency, pull the alarm bell crisis as you could possibly imagine. You can vote out those people. You also can run for election administration positions yourself. Like, you know, sometimes it's annoying when people are like, go run for office if you want it to change. But like, these are pretty like uncontested elections. You can like volunteer to go be an election worker, a poll worker, to go run for certification offices. I mean, we talked about primaries. These are elections that have such low turnout. If you go run and have all your friends vote for you, like you'll probably win. Like you can put yourself in powerful positions here, but in the states that have already changed their structure of government such that partisans can certify or not certify elections, we're kind of screwed. And we just got to win by a big enough number that Republicans aren't within cheating distance of victory. But I wish I had a more programmatic, positive answer here. Fundamentally, it's just electing better representatives who are not trying to literally undermine our entire democracy. Yeah, and I think it would have a lot of positive impact also in just presidents finding it harder to slice and dice the American population, as Obama said, right? I mean, one of the things that produces that outcome is that you know, hey, this particular presidential election is likely going to depend on these two or three states. And so then you can really focus in on these states and say, how do we get this extra couple of thousand votes here? And can we mobilize a very specific socioeconomic or ethnic group in order to swing that state? I think it would just be much healthier for our national politics if every vote counts, wherever it comes from, you have to speak to Americans as a whole. It would make it much harder to do that kind of demographic targeting at scale. One of the reasons why I don't see the point of engaging in this debate is that Statehood for D.C. or statehood for Puerto Rico is constitutionally complicated, but there's a relatively straightforward path there. We can imagine what it would look like. The political prospects for reforming the Senate are so low. Oh, it's uh, it's functionally impossible, yes. (laughs) Right. But I also, you know, just don't see the purpose in talking about it, unless we want to abolish the Constitution and start from scratch, which would have all kinds of other problems and risks. It just isn't going to happen. And so I don't see what the point of debating it in too much detail is. But that leads me to another point, which is I think that it excuses Democrats in particular for making smart strategic and political choices, right? You're saying that there is this 
imbalance. And I feel queasy about it as well. I think that that comes from a very sensible perspective. But the imbalance in the Senate has hugely grown because of the political choices that Democrats have made in the last decades. Democrats, like many left-wing parties around the world, have chosen to become the party of highly educated urban elites. And that means that they are racking up votes in the state of New York and in California, and they have ceased being competitive in places like Iowa and uh, Ohio and elsewhere. And so we can sit around and fantasize about the wonderful reform we'll do to the Senate, or we can think about how the Democratic Party, which under a Black leader, Barack Obama, was competitive in those states and won those states, might go back to actually being able to win senatorial elections in those territories. And that seems to me like, at least politically speaking, the far more sensible thing to focus our energies on. You know, a friend of mine who's long worked in American politics said, it's easier for Democrats to imagine losing our democracy entirely or fundamentally changing all of our institutions than it is to imagine winning a Senate race in Indiana. Like that is the fundamental problem is that you do fight politics with the institutions that you have, not the institutions that you wish you have. And given that, I think Democratic leadership has been an absolute calamity. I mean, the way that Democrats talk about politics right now, the issues that we choose to focus on, it's not what you do if you recognize that you're this far from having equal representation in your government. Like what Democrats need to do is form a broader coalition than the other party because of these systematic imbalances. And if you want to change any of these things, if you want to make DC and Puerto Rico states, which that's the reason that I think it's worth talking about why the Senate is so messed up is because I think that those policies, which could be passed with 50 votes if you got rid of the filibuster, like those are genuinely worth pursuing. They're like morally right. They're strategically right. I think they're politically right. If you were thinking about the 2024 presidential elections, yeah, the way that I think about it at the moment is that Donald Trump is way outside the American cultural mainstream and the Republican yes. Party is way outside the American cultural mainstream. And so it should be easy to win. But to some extent unfairly and to a significant extent fairly, Americans perceive Democrats as also being way outside the American cultural mainstream. And so yeah. the way to minimize the likelihood of Donald Trump regaining power in 2024, which I continue to regard as a clear and present danger to American democracy, or if you're likely to the American Republic, is to get back into the American cultural mainstream. And as you're pointing out, the American cultural mainstream today is not bigoted. It is not racist. It is not attempting to turn the clock back to Jim Crow or to 100 years ago. The silent majority in this country now is actually reasonable, which has not always been the case in American history, for sure. So one of the three biggest mistakes Democrats are making, and if you could write a short verbal memo to Democrats for what they have to change to maximize the chances of winning in 2024, what would it be? I, mean, I actually think it's like one fundamental thing that Democrats are doing wrong, which is it's not just as you say that Americans are less bigoted on average than you might think. The American people are actually supportive of a pretty progressive agenda in terms of making America a place with more equal opportunity. Like Americans really support increasing taxes on the wealthy raising the minimum wage. They support all sorts of programs that Democrats theoretically could be talking about and paying attention to and pursuing and could be making our politics about. And instead, we're focusing on the very issues that are most 
divisive to Americans. And so beyond just how we talk, legislatively, we have a House of Representatives that we control. We control the presidency. And in the Senate, we have 50 votes and we have these reconciliation bills we could pass. Joe Manchin offered $1.7 trillion or something in a package to pass. Like, that's a ton of money. You could do a ton of good. And instead, we've done absolutely nothing. I mean, you look at the Biden legacy. Like, what we wanted to prove to Americans was like, if Democrats win, like, we will deliver for you. And like, this is what happened. Like, Biden became president, passed like one big bill, which like expired. So like, it had all sorts of interesting programs, but it had like a hodgepodge of programs in it. Like the child tax credit's a pretty great one. Cut child poverty in half. That's genuinely an astounding achievement. And like their theory was that like they would pass these bills and they would be so popular that like they would obviously be able to pass another even bigger bill. And like inflation happens, the appetite kind of goes away. Chuck Schumer then breaks his deal with Joe Manchin. Joe Biden, who ran as the guy who could go over to Congress and make deals with Republicans, that was his whole brand, decides to give up on that entirely, functionally taking Schumer's side and fighting for this giant package. And so instead of the $3.5 trillion package, instead of a $1.7 trillion package, we're at $0. We pass one kind of milk toast infrastructure package. I don't know, there's some like roads and bridges and whatever that we'll build that are going to be significant and electrical charging stations. And it's like a pretty good bill. But all of the hallmark legislative achievements from Joe Biden are gone. Promised Americans that they would be paid more and functionally have faced with inflation the biggest pay cut we have seen in generations. So like instead of raising the minimum wage, we essentially cut it by 8% if you think about inflation, given that we've passed no legislative change. So you ask Americans, like, are you better off than you were two years ago? And like, it's a pretty tricky answer. Like all of the wind was at Joe Biden's back. Becomes president at the end of a pandemic. So like suddenly people can like do things again. Like that's an amazing advantage. Like suddenly people can go back to work. Like you could fix the economy again. And you have legislative majorities you could use to enact an agenda that actually helps the people and instead spent so much time on infighting, so much time trying to deliver the maximalist version of his policies, the $3.5 trillion program, that you end up with nothing except, I don't know, you got out of Afghanistan in a really messy way that left behind all sorts of refugees who you didn't even protect, including translators who helped you. Like, I don't know, like, it's just a really tough fucking argument. And so here's what I'd say to Democrats, like, forget the messaging, you have power, like you have control of government, from now till November. Joe Manchin doesn't want us to lose the midterms. Kirsten Cinema doesn't want us to lose the midterms. That doesn't benefit anybody. Like, we could pass an agenda. We have two reconciliation bills we could pass. Fucking pass popular shit. Like, just do it. Like, pass the bills people actually want you to pass, not the wedge issues that you like to focus on or that Twitter says you should focus on. And then once you've done that, campaign on that agenda and keep building power and keep wielding the power that you've been using to deliver for the American people. It'll be much easier for Democrats to convince the public to admit D.C. and Puerto Rico as states if we demonstrated a modicum of competence or ability to actually have state capacity. And if we aren't, in the absence of that, I don't blame Americans for being like, fuck it. Like, I don't even care. And then you're going to have a low turnout election that ends up favoring the other party, even though substantively Americans are on our side and agree with us on far more things than they disagree with us with. On It is really just one of the most depressing state of affairs that I could possibly imagine two years into this presidency. And last point, but Democrats acting like this is normal, pretending everything's okay, that doesn't work. Like if you're in a relationship and there's like problems or whatever, and you just like shove them to the side, doesn't mean they're not there. Like America's just not that into you right now. Like the polls say that it's obvious Like people aren't excited about your agenda. 
like change your ways or you're going to lose. And if you lose, you might lose forever. So you have power right now, like wield it and do some good shit. So again, agreed with all of that. What about the cultural stuff, right? Because I do think that in many important ways today, you know, economic discontent with inflation so on is a very important driver of public opinion. But culture seems to be at the beating heart of American politics. If you watch Fox News or MSNBC, what people are talking about is culture. If you look at what are the most read articles in newspapers and magazines, they don't tend to be about the inflation rate. They don't tend to be about economic policy. They tend to be about the big cultural dividing lines. What is it on culture that Democrats need to do in order to appeal to most Americans? And what would that look like? So this is where I actually think what I was saying about the Build Back Better bill or whatever agenda we could pass is relevant beyond the numbers. It's all about like issue prioritization, right? One of the things Donald Trump is really good at was deciding what Americans were going to talk about. So like Americans might not have agreed with him on immigration. He was more extreme than the average American. But Donald Trump at every rally, people forget this in 2016, he would bring the mothers of people who were killed by undocumented folks. Obviously, that is like repugnant. It's not representative. He's using anecdotes to try to tell a broader story that's not at all representative of how immigrants are. But what happened is that in 2016, the presidential election was about immigration. So he was like on footing that he was really comfortable with. He wanted to talk about cultural issues. He wanted to talk about terrorism coming over the border. And that then ended up being what everyone was debating. So it became like an immigration election. Like, which side are you on? And like, in general, Americans didn't agree with Trump. Like, they kind of thought like, I don't know, like maybe like we want like fewer immigrants, not more immigrants, which like I disagree with. But like that was much better footing for him than Republican elections that would have been about Social Security and Medicare. Right. Where like Republicans wanted to cut those things. If Democrats were debating that, like that advantages Democrats. And so it's all about like what turf are you playing on? And so when Democrats spend all of their time talking about issues that are the least popular or when they let Republicans decide what issues we're going to be talking about and fall into those conversations. Like what you're doing is making the elections about the very subjects on which you're weakest. And that's why I think passing an agenda enacting actual reforms and change matters because we can be like, look, like this is what we're about. Like the child tax credit is literally making it so you can have a child and know that they won't be in poverty. That, like they won't struggle to like eat food. Like that's a really good issue for us. Like, that just feels really good. And like to talk instead about whatever the hell Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida right now, like, think about it. Like, do you think he's doing that because he doesn't want us to talk about it? Or do you think he's doing that because he wants us to talk about it? It's like on its merits, like what he's doing is fucked up. But like, there's so many fucking issues around the country. This is a random governor doing a random thing that we should combat and that people in that state should combat and run against him and do whatever they want. But like, talk about your agenda. Like, talk about what you're going to do for people, because otherwise Republicans set the terms of the debate and we're going to keep having elections like 2016, where Republicans decide this is the immigration election and Democrats are like, bet. And then they're debating on a subject that they're absolutely ill-equipped to debate on or that they're just their positions are fundamentally less popular than they are on other issues. And so I agree with you that this is a problem, but I don't think the issue is that Democrats, by and large, have like the wrong take on these issues. I mean, you look at Joe Biden. If anything, his worst cultural take polling wise is being against legalizing weed, which is now popular with over 70% of the public. But he's just like an old curmudgeonly guy who's got like kind of like weird cultural takes. Like the problem isn't like what Democrats believe who are in elected office. The problem is that we're talking about all the issues where there are voices in our party that are most extreme and are easiest to paint as radical and outside of the American mainstream, as you said. And so by letting Republicans set the terms of that debate, we've just made an absolutely catastrophic error. I agree. That makes me 
quite pessimistic about the ability of Democrats to turn around their fortunes, right? I mean, let's say that they do this. They don't say fund the police and the State of the Union. They also don't say defund the police. They simply don't speak to those issues, which essentially means that in the public perception, it is the New York Times editorial board and MSNBC, which sets the understanding of where Democrats are at and the consensus in the New York Times' opinion pages and in MSNBC is way to the left culturally of where the average American voters are, right? And then the economy, Biden, let's say, manages to strike a deal with Manchin in the $1.7 trillion spending bill, which are some actually good things for Americans. But it's unclear that it'll do that by 2024. It's unclear to what extent that will be outweighed by other negative developments like a possible recession and ongoing inflation that just aren't under the control of a president or not entirely under the control of the president. And even insofar as it has a positive effect, it's unclear that voters are going to see that. And then they might like the rhetoric from Joe Biden saying, you know, I'm fighting inflation and I'm raising women minimum wage, but they're not seeing in their own perception that have any correlation with doing better than they were four years ago. That doesn't sound like enough for me to have any amount of confidence that Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump in 2024. Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, as that drought data point shows you, Americans are probably going to be voting based on whether they feel better off than they were four years ago. That's just generally how Americans vote. And that's why my priority would be substantively making people's lives better and then doing the job of communicating that you're going to make their lives better. And at least doing the job of promising that over the next four years, you're going to respond to their actual concerns, the actual difficulties that they face. You know, if you're talking about the funding or defunding the police argument, like I think once you're talking about that, you're losing. But if you look just in terms of communications policy aside, like at what Eric Adams is doing in New York, shows up the Met Gala in a stop gun violence dress or whatever he was wearing suit. And like what he was doing is like, I hear you that what you're worried about is crime. Like he's like, New Yorkers are worried about crime. Like, I hear you. That's a genuine concern of yours. And unlike some wedge cultural issues, polls show that that's a main priority of like a lot of Americans. They're genuinely really worried about inflation, really worried about crime. Whatever you think about that on its merits, that's what Americans say. And Eric Adams, instead of focusing on the funding of police, whatever, he was a former police officer. He's like, the problem here is like gun violence. I'm going to go get all these guns. And New Yorkers, if you look at the polls, really believe Eric Adams. Like we believe that he cares about these issues and is going to do what he can to fight. And I think like in general, like that's really what politicians have to communicate. It's not like we're just arbitrarily setting the terms of what we think we should be talking about. Like this is the minimum wage election. Like I don't think that's what people care about right now necessarily more than anything else. But it's like be responsive to the actual needs of the American people. Like what are they struggling most with? The prices of oil, the price of milk. They're worried about their neighborhood being dangerous, their kids' school not being great. Like what are you going to do about that? And like Beyond what are you going to do about it? Like, talk about it. Talk about the issues that people actually care about and then present some policies that are compelling. And just to get back to the democracy stuff we've been talking about, like, if you believe in democracy, if you believe that, like, the American people know best and the government should reflect their interests, then, like, trust them. You should really, like, be campaigning based on what they say matters, not based on what you and your, like, liberal elite circle thinks matters, not based on what you and your weird conservative federalist society enclave thinks matters. Like, what do the American people think matter? And then like, what are you going to do about it? And like, I think fundamentally, if that's where your starting place when you're figuring out your politics, like how can we actually serve the people <laughs> who elect us? Like that very basic trivial point. I just think you'd get a much better set of outcomes than the outcomes we've gotten. And so while I am pessimistic about the short-term 
prospects of the Democratic Party if we don't radically change things around. In the long run, I do have faith. There's more people who agree with our set of priorities than disagree with them. And it's really ours to fuck up whether we're going to fail to communicate to people that we're the party that can actually deliver to them. And so I think that's our agenda. And I really hope for the sake of our democracy and for the sake of the American people that we follow a different path and actually start delivering for them. Sam, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.